So let me tell you about a conversation that I had this week in a meeting that I was in that probably mirrors some meetings that you have been in um, in the last few years. It was about a 30-minute or maybe an hour-long meeting, and three different times in this meeting, I heard these words spoken. Well, because of COVID, and then the sentence was finished, right? Have you had conversations like this? Well, you know, ever since the pandemic, this is the way that it's been or whatever. And, and so some of the things that we were talking about in the meeting that I was in was, well, because of the pandemic, there are some real supply chain shortages for some particular items. Or because of COVID, there's a real worker shortage or a shortage of availability of laborers in these days. And just different things that have been caused or impacted um, because of the COVID pandemic. You've likely had those same kinds of conversations. All of us know this. We live in a world that is in many ways altered, kind of forever changed because of the impact of the, the pandemic and the shutdowns around the pandemic and our response to the pandemic. That's not only true in the secular world, it's not only true in the marketplace or in the school systems or in, uh, in you know, governments, but it's also true in the church. The church, in many ways, changed its methods or the way that it operated as a result of COVID. A lot of different ways. And some of those changes were good and healthy changes, and others, you know, maybe were not so healthy. One of the ways in which the church changed as a result of COVID has to do with the meteoric rise, the exponential increase in the number of churches who now stream their churches, their church services live online on Sunday mornings. Let me give you some, some statistics, some numbers that I think might blow your mind. I know they blew my mind. Pre-COVID, so, so prior to March of 2020, 27% of the churches in America offered a live stream of their services at the exact same time that the service was happening in person. It was going out live over the internet. Think about it. Barely one in four churches were doing that back in 2020. Now, to be uh, truthful, Brookstone was one of the churches that was doing it. We've been streaming all of our worship services live every single Sunday for probably 10 years. And so this was a very normal, natural part of our ministry. We've been doing it for a for a long time. But three years ago, there weren't a whole lot that were doing it. When COVID hit, that number jumped immediately from 27% to 97%. Can you imagine? 97% of churches during COVID were streaming online. Now, to be honest, a lot of those were just the pastor in his living room with a cell phone, right, and doing a Facebook Live that was kind of what they had to, to offer. They didn't have the technology. They weren't prepared for that. And so that's what they could do. And that's what a lot of churches did. That's kind of how they survived uh, for a number of months. So 27 cent pre-COVID, or percent, 97% during COVID. But now the pandemic is over. And churches have returned. And churches are meeting in person. And yet the number of churches that are streaming their in-person services live online has not gone back down to 27%. Do you know what it is today? It's 85%. 85% of the churches in America this morning that are meeting in, per, uh, in person this morning, just like we are, are at the same time streaming that service live around the world over the internet just like we are right now. That is exactly what is happening. And I need for you to hear me say, this is both good and bad. And it's really good for some really important reasons. A live stream of a Sunday worship service is a beautiful thing when it provides access to a group of people or a family or an individual who otherwise could not access a worship service. We're talking about shut-ins 
or elderly people who, who can't get out and go to church, or somebody who is a caregiver. Maybe they're caring for an elderly parent, and so they're rotating with siblings perhaps, and every Sunday it's their day to be with that family member so they can't come to church. We're, we're talking about families um, who live far away, and they, they are blessed by the ministry of a particular church, but they can't drive because it's too far away, and so they're able to access it that way. We're talking about people who have cancer and they're undergoing chemotherapy and so their immune system is compromised and they can't get in crowds and, and an online service allows them an opportunity to do that. These are good reasons, valid, beautiful, wonderful reasons to provide an online live stream. It's also good for people who want to visit the church. And yet, before they visit, they want to experience it online. They want to check it out online. Almost everybody does that now. Before they come as a guest, they'll check it out online for a few weeks. That's a positive thing. That's a, that's a good kind of front door to the church. It's also a great thing for people who are unchurched or unsaved. And maybe they're just beginning to question the claims of Christ and, and they're not ready, they're not going to walk into a church yet, but they can access that truth online and, and begin to investigate the claims of Christ that way. Those are all good things and I celebrate those things and I'm grateful that we have the privilege of providing those things. In fact, I'm so thankful for our team that work hard every single week. We have an incredible production staff or technical staff here who provide a beautiful online experience and they try every way possible to make that online experience as engaging as possible. I'm so proud of them, staff and volunteers who do that. These are all good things. But you heard me say a moment ago, it's also a bad thing. And some of the reasons that it's a bad thing is because it's possible that, an, that offering an online service every Sunday morning can foster a consumer kind of mindset in the hearts of Christian men and women, which to be honest with you, I believe that mindset has infected the church in America in some pretty significant ways. It causes us sometimes to interact with our church in the same sort of way that we interact with Amazon, right? I need something, I click a button, it comes to me, right? And so that's kind of the way my church, if I'm always an online viewer, that's the way my church uh, kind of uh, interaction is. I click a button and, and the service comes to, into my home. That's not a good thing. It's also not a good thing because it has the, the danger of uh, encouraging isolation. And Satan wants God's people isolated from one another. And so if he can cause me to be isolated, not because I have to be, not because I don't have any choice, but because I'm just choosing to be isolated, choosing to stay home all the time and get my church online, then that's not good because it weakens me spiritually. And the third reason it's a bad thing is because it can play into this, this attitude or it can cause us to, to be, and I'm being, I really want to be kind and, and gentle but truthful with this, it can play into a lazy, unhealthy, unfit form of Christianity or, or interaction or participation within the body of Christ, where here's what it does. It dumbs down or it lowers the bar of my participation with the body to the same level, and I love you, but this is true, of my Netflix membership. I can just get it on demand. I can just watch it when it's live streamed, and I can binge it if I want to, or I can, and it just takes me away from the body, and it causes me to just get it all in a way that's unhealthy, Okay? So here's, here's the good and bad bottom line with regard to this recent phenomenon in church world. Let me give it to you straight. Online worship attendance is a spiritual lifeline to some. And we celebrate that we can throw out that lifeline. But it is a spiritual couch to many. And nobody ever got fit 
sitting on the couch. Amen? And so with that, let me welcome you to week number five of this series that we're calling Get Fit. All of these weeks, as you know, we are spending our Sunday mornings together thinking about how we can grow spiritually, how we can grow in godliness and get fit spiritually. And so we've been talking about 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, which encourages us, it doesn't encourage us, it commands us that we are to exercise ourselves, exercise our spiritual muscles, discipline ourselves for the sake of godliness. We've been embracing some spiritual disciplines over these weeks. And so we've talked about four of them so far. Number one was uh, scripture intake. To grow in godliness, I must be taking in the word of God on a regular basis. Number two is personal prayer. I need to develop the practice, the habit, the discipline of having time with the Lord, praying to him about everything uh, and on every day if I am to grow. Number three was servanthood. In order to grow in godliness, to get fit spiritually, I need to live as a servant, one who longs to serve others, not who demands to be served by others. And then number four, last Sunday we talked about the spiritual discipline of generosity and stewardship. Remember, generosity is a choice that we make. Stewardship is a discipline that we learn. And so that was last week. Today we come to spiritual discipline number five, which is simply this, write it down, the spiritual discipline of assembling with the church. If I am going to grow spiritually, I must live with the discipline of of assembling or gathering with the church. Now let me make all of you a promise. In the room, East Campus, online, Let me make you a promise. Let me tell you what I am not going to do today, okay? I am not going to beat you up verbally. I promise you. I'm not going to, uh, you know, throw down this gauntlet and y'all, I'm going to beat you up for not coming to church every single Sunday and I'm not going to do that. I am not going to impose upon you a legalistic kind of guilt trip today. It's not my heart. It's not my goal. But I am, let me tell you what I am going to do by God's grace. I am going to show you from the scriptures why it is that God commands us to faithfully and consistently assemble, gather as a body of believers. And I'm going to show you from the scriptures why this command or how this command is rooted in right theology. Listen carefully. It is rooted in a right understanding of our covenant relationship with God and with each other. And when we get the theology right, then the practice will follow. It's not rooted in legalism. It's not rooted in tradition. It's rooted in good theology. Number three, I am going to show you why Jesus is worthy He is worthy that we would make the worship of his name as his people a priority and a high value in our lives. So I'm not going to beat you up and I'm not going to impose legalism on you, but I am going to teach you from the Bible why this is important. And so we've turned to the book of Hebrews, which is such a, a deep and rich book of the Bible. Let me take just a minute to orient you to the book, familiarize you with it if you're not certain about what the book of Hebrews is all about. As you might deduce from the name, this book was written for the uh, sake of the Jewish people. It was written to Hebrew people. It was written by an unknown author to the Jewish people who were hearing the gospel of Jesus and who were coming to trust in Jesus. And for these Jewish people, this was a struggle because they were stepping away from the life of Judaism, which they had always known. They had been thoroughly taught and educated and immersed in a life where they related to God, the one true God, through a system of legalistic rituals, rites and routines and high and holy days and and dietary laws and kosher laws, all of these things that that were a part and parcel of how they related to to this God, their God. And then Jesus came 
And Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh. Jesus proved himself to be God. And then he went to the cross and died to pay for their sins and ours. And then he was raised from the dead. And they were hearing from the Apostle Paul and others a message that if you will release the law, release that Levitical system of Judaism and embrace Christ, Christ will be your Savior. This Messiah has come to truly give you a relationship with God. And man, that was a struggle. How do I let go of this and grab on to that? And so the writer of Hebrews writes this book to compare the old covenant with all of its systems and, and parts and, and elements with the person and the work of Jesus. If you can imagine the book of Hebrews as being a scale, and the writer of Hebrews on the one side of the scale begins with the old covenant. And he places all of the elements of the old covenant on the scale and that drops, that scale plate drops down with the weight and value of the old covenant. And then he begins adding on this side of the scale, Jesus, his glories, his identity, his work, his death, his resurrection, his new covenant. And you begin to see the scale change. That's the whole point is to compare Christ in the new covenant with Moses, the law and the Old Covenant. In fact, go back to chapter 1. You'll see this in the very beginning. Look at chapter 1 and verse 1. In the first few verses of Hebrews, this writer begins to masterfully draw these comparisons. Listen to verse number 1. He says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners, it means in many times in many ways, spoke in time past unto our fathers by the prophets, he hath in these last days, or recent days, in these days, he has spoken unto us by his son. Stop right there. Do you see what he just did? He's writing to Hebrews, Jewish people, who knew the Levitical system, knew the messages of the prophets. And he says, God used to speak to us through the prophets, but now God is speaking to us in a different way. God did operate in that way under the old covenant, but now God is relating to us in a new way through his son, in this new covenant, he's beginning to make these comparisons. And now watch what he does beginning in verse number two with the identity of Jesus. He says, he hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things and by whom he made the worlds. Hello, did you see what he just did? He just declared the divinity of Jesus. He just said, Jesus made the worlds. And every Jewish person hearing this knew Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And he just applied Genesis 1-1 to Jesus Christ by whom he made the worlds. But he gets deeper and richer from there. Speaking of Jesus in verse 3, he says, who being the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. He just deepens. He's just ratcheting down on the deity of Jesus. He calls Jesus the express image, the revelation, the mirror image, the perfect revelation of God himself. He says that Jesus is the brightness of God's glory and that Jesus holds all things Together, He's calling him God. He says, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. He begins in the very first verses to say, Jesus is greater than the law. Jesus is greater than the old covenant. And beginning in verse number four, he begins to draw comparisons. You see this in verse number four when he says, Jesus has been made so much better than the angels. Stop right there. There's the first comparison. He's better than the angels. Remember the scale? He's got the old covenant here. He's weighted down the scale with all of the value of the old covenant. And now he begins to say, but Jesus has come. God is speaking to us through Jesus. And he puts Jesus on the scale. And then he begins to say, now Jesus is better than the angels. And the scale ticks a little bit. And then he says, Jesus is better than Moses. 
And Jesus is better than the law. And Jesus is better than the priesthood. And Jesus is better than the high priest. And Jesus is better than the sacrifices in the temple. And Jesus is better than the offerings. And by the time you get to the end of Hebrews, he has declared and confirmed that Jesus Christ is better. If you believe Jesus is better, shout amen. That's the message. Jesus is better. And when you come to chapter 9, go back to chapter 9 of Hebrews. When you come to chapter number 9, he begins to explain to us how that Jesus is better in his sacrificial substitutionary death. His death for us on the cross to pay the penalty of our sins and to purchase our salvation. He does this by comparing Jesus' blood, the offering of Jesus on the cross, to the offerings of of the old covenant. And in fact, let me take you to chapter number nine and verse number 19, where he, just to sort of introduce the theme of the text where we're going to read, listen to what he says in chapter nine, verse 19. For when Moses had spoken every precept to the, all the people according to the law, as that when the law had been revealed, then he took the blood of calves and goats, animals that had been sacrificed, mixed it with water, took scarlet wool and hyssop, He sprinkled the blood on both the book, that is the scroll of the law, and on the people. The Jewish covenant people, the law of God recorded on the scroll, he took the blood and he sanctified or purified those elements of the old covenant with the blood. Now keep reading. Look at verse number 21. Moreover, beyond that, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and the vessels of the ministry. So God went on to tell them, now I want you to create a tabernacle where you make your sacrifices and where I will meet with you. And when those were created, they were purified with the blood of calves and the blood of bulls or goats as well. Verse 23, it was therefore necessary that the patterns of the things in heaven should be purified with the blood of these sacrifices. Now, both campuses, y'all listening, shout amen. Don't miss this. Here's what he says. That under the old covenant, there was a tabernacle, ultimately a temple. There, there was an ark of the covenant. There was a candlestick, uh, the menorah. There, there were altars and, and a, a table of incense and, and different gold and silver elements. And there was a priesthood and there was a law. And all of these things existed in the earth or on the earth. He says that all of these had to be purified. They were purified with blood because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. They had to be purified with blood. And they were purified with the blood, the sacrifice of these animals. But notice verse 23. He says these elements, these things, this temple, this priesthood, these offerings are patterns of things in heaven. Don't miss this. He says that all of the elements of the first covenant, the old covenant, are miniature models of the greater covenant which exists eternally in heaven. So there, there was a temple on the earth, there's a temple in heaven. There was the blood of a sacrifice made on the earth, there was the blood of sacrifice that was offered in heaven. There's a holy of holies, a throne of God, as you, if you will, on the earth, there's a throne of God in heaven. Everything here in the old covenant, these were all patterns, copies, miniature models of the real thing in heaven. And so he says in verse number 23, those earthly things had to be purified with blood, the blood of animals. Look at the end of verse 23. But the heavenly things themselves, they were not purified with animal blood, but with better things than animal blood, with a better offering than the offering of an animal. And what was that offering and where did that blood come from? Well, let's pick up the text in verse number 24. Chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true, that holy place on the earth, just a model of the true. But Christ is entered into heaven itself, where he now appears in the presence of God for us nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest had to enter into the holy place on the earth every year 
with the blood of others. For then he must have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once, in the end of the age, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Stop. Do you see what he's doing? It's a little bit complex, but do you see what he's doing? He's comparing the offering of blood, the blood of bulls and goats, with the offering of the blood of Jesus Christ. And he said the blood of bulls and goats was offered in the earth. The blood of Jesus Christ, once for all, was offered in heaven. All right, look at it. Verse number 27. As it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, even so, in the same way, Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them who look for him, he shall appear the second time without sin unto salvation. For the law, the old covenant, the law, having a shadow, just a foreshadowing of good things to come and not the very image of those things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make those coming thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, once purged, should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he came into the world, Jesus said, quoting Psalm 40, Sacrifice and offering, God, you would not, you did not want but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Yet said I, lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Beyond when he said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you would not, neither did you have pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then he went on to say, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He, Jesus, takes away the first covenant that he may establish the second covenant. And by this will of God, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest would stand daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus... After he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down at the right hand of God. From henceforth, expecting until his enemies would be made his footstool. For by one offering, Jesus has perfected forever them that are sanctified. And whereof, the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and into their minds. I will write them, quoting Jeremiah 31. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where the remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. And having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus... By a new and living way which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say through his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, and let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. I know that's a long text, but I would simply say this is the word of the Lord. I want you to jot down somewhere in your notes what is clearly happening in this passage, and I think you've probably seen it as I've been reading it. But it is in this passage, this writer is highlighting the inadequacies of the old covenant. He's highlighting the fact that for all of its value and with all of its, all of its importance, the old covenant was only a foreshadowing 
of the new covenant, the greater covenant that would be established through the blood of Jesus. What he's saying is that all of the offerings ever offered, all of the Levitical priests in their ministry, all of the Levitical priestly choirs singing their songs, all of the burning of incense and lighting of candles, all of the honoring of holy days and holy weeks and festival pilgrimages, all of the following of kosher laws and obeying the law of the old covenant, all of that for all of its worth was never sufficient to take away sin. It was never intended to be the permanent cure for our sin. It was not curative. It was only prescriptive for a time. He says this in chapter 10, verses 2 through 4, that it could never take away our sin. It could never soothe our guilty conscience. And he even says in chapter 10, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, that God took no pleasure in those sacrifices, even though God commanded them, that he was not ultimately pleased with them because they could not complete the work of our redemption. He speaks in verse 11 about these endless generations of priests who come to the temple year after year after year until they die. And when they die, another one, their son becomes priest until he dies and then his son. And this went on for generations, priest after priest after priest, offering sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And he says, these sacrifices from this endless line of priests were wholly incapable of ever washing away sin. And having made that point, he then establishes this truth that Jesus is better. Because Jesus came to offer a sacrifice which would be eternally adequate. In fact, I hope you'll write that down somewhere. This eternally adequate sacrifice of Jesus. He describes to us how Jesus sacrificed or why Jesus' sacrifice is adequate for our sins. He established in chapter 1 that Jesus is God, therefore his sacrifice is perfect. He says in chapter 10 and verse 5 that Jesus came from heaven and took on flesh, became a man, took on a body so that that body would be crucified for us. He tells us in chapter 10 verses 7 through 9 that sacrificially dying in our place was the will of God and that by that will we are saved. He tells us in verses 10 through 14 that Jesus didn't offer a sacrifice of bulls and goats, but he offered a perfect sacrifice. And it was one sacrifice for all time and all sin forever. He tells us in verse 16 that the Holy Spirit indwells us now because of this sacrifice. And in verse number 17, he says that God's wrath is completely satisfied. Let me show it to you. Chapter 10 and verse number 17. And their sins, God says, and iniquities I will remember no more. Listen, that doesn't mean that God is forgetful. It doesn't mean that God has amnesia. There's a really popular Southern gospel song from a few years back which says something like this, I came before God and I said, forgive me of my sins. And he said, what sins are you talking about? Do you know the song? What sins are you talking about? I don't remember them anymore. It's a sweet song, it's a good lyric, but it, it's a bit theologically incorrect because God has never forgotten a single one of your sins or, my, or mine. If y'all are listening, shout amen. Both campuses hear me. God remembers every sin you've ever committed. He's never forgotten it. God knows every sin you ever will commit. And in all eternity, he will always and forever remember them. He will never forget them. What verse 17 means, not that God has amnesia. It means that God has decided because of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus that he will not recall your sins to you ever in all eternity. He will never bring them up because Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sins Jesus is better. That's the whole point. And in fact, when you read what he says about this in chapter number 10, he comes to a conclusion that would make the jaw of every Jewish man or woman hearing this message or reading this letter drop to the floor. Look at it. He says in verse number 19, chapter 10, verse number 19, 
because of all that Jesus did, because Jesus is better and his sacrifice is perfect, he says in verse 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness, it means confidence or courage, to enter into the holy of holies by a new and living way. And every Jewish listener went, enter the holy of holies? Nobody entered the holy of holies. You couldn't just walk into the temple and walk through the holy place and go into the holiest of all where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the glory of God came down. You couldn't just walk in there. You would die in the presence of God. Only the high priest could go in and only one day a year could he go after offering sacrifices even for himself. But this writer says, we now have boldness to walk into the very presence of God. Why? Because Jesus is better. And his sacrifice is better. He says, we can come boldly before the throne of grace. We have a new and living way through the flesh, the sacrificed flesh, the risen body of Christ. And because verse 21 tells us that Jesus is our great high priest, we are welcoming God's presence. Now, all of that to establish the basis theologically of why God commands us to assemble. I want you to go to verse 19. I want you to circle a word, okay? Circle, highlight, dog ear the corner of that page, mark it, don't ever lose this. I want you to circle this really important theological word in verse number 19. It is the word, are you ready? Therefore. It's a really important word. Therefore. Look at it, verse number 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the presence of God because Jesus has made a way And he is our high priest. Therefore, let us. Do you see it, verse 22? Let us. Do you see it, verse 23? Let us. Do you see it, verse 24? Let us. Three imperatives in three verses. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider one another. And all three of these imperatives, all three of these commands that we should do these three things are given in the context of covenantal worship. That is in the context of God's covenant people coming before him in worship of our covenant keeping God. Let me tell you what most people do with these, with two of these three imperatives. We read verse 22, let us draw near to God. And we say, well, that's personal. I do that individually, personally. And we, we are commanded to do so. Then we say, let us hold fast to the profession of our faith. Well, that's just me. I just do that personally. And then we say, verse 24, let us consider one another, not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And we say, okay, well, I guess I should go to church as well. We take the three commands. We make two-thirds of them about me personally and one-third of them about the congregation, about the covenant family. And loved ones, you cannot do that in this passage. The context will not allow it because that is not what this passage is saying. It is speaking to a covenant people worshiping their covenant God. So here's what he says as we close. He says, because Jesus is better, And because in his new covenant, he has shed a perfect sacrifice, shed perfect blood through his perfect sacrifice to pay for all sins forever so that God will never hold our sins against us. And he has given us the Holy Spirit and we can come into his presence boldly and confidently. And he is our high priest because all those things are true. Number one, write it down. He says, let us assemble with heartfelt and holy worship. This is verse 22. Let us assemble with heartfelt and holy worship. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, again, some of you may be thinking, but that means I can draw near to him anytime. I, I, with Jesus, I can always draw near individually. I, that's personal, right? Yeah, you can do that personally. And you're commanded in the scriptures to do that repeatedly. This is just not one of the places where you're told to do that. In this place, you're told to assemble with the covenant family 
coming before our covenant-keeping God. Verse number near, draw, or verse number 22, the word draw near means to approach in worship. It means to visit, to come together and associate with. And the word that's translated draw near in verse 22 is the exact same word from chapter 10, verse 1, where he talks about the worshipers coming to the temple. Those who came to the temple could not permanently be cleansed with the blood of animals. It's the exact same word. It is a word to a covenant people coming before our God together. So how do we apply it? Look at verse number 22. He says, when we assemble, when we come together, let us draw near with a true heart. That's the first instruction about our assembling. When we come together to worship the Lord, we come together with a sincere heart. This is authenticity among the people. That you approach worship with a genuine heart before the Lord, with an authenticity and a longing to exalt and honor Him and worship Him, fully surrendered to Him. That's the first element, first instruction. Second instruction is that we would draw near in full assurance of faith. This is our confidence in the person and the work of Christ. When we come together, we come together certain of who Jesus is. Maybe uncertain about ourselves. Maybe struggling in our own frustration with where we are on the journey. But never doubting him because he is faithful. Number three, he instructs us to come together with our hearts cleansed. And our conscience clear before God. Verse 22, in full assurance of faith and having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. It means that, that I've come before the Lord with my, with my sins confessed and my desire is that he would be pleased in, in my life. and my, 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 I'm free in him. My conscience is free because of his work of grace. And finally, in verse number 22, that we would come with our bodies washed with pure water. This is our lives cleaned by the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God sanctifying us, not dragging in with, with a life totally unsurrendered, uncommitted to honoring Him, but a life that wants to be pure and right with Him. You understand that the, that the command to assemble is a command where he says, I want my covenant people washed in my blood, right with God, walking in fellowship with this covenant-keeping God. I want you to assemble. And when you come, I want your heart to be genuine. I want your conscience to be clean. I want your faith in Christ to be certain. And I want your life to be surrendered. And loved ones, these are the gifts that we give to one another as we assemble. I give you the gift of a genuine, authentic desire and confident faith in Christ and a life longing to be right with him and a heart free in him. That's my gift to you as I come to worship with you. And that's your gift to me and to everyone else. He says, because God has made us a covenant people, let us assemble with a heart that is genuine and a life that is holy. Number two, and by the way, we should do that because he's worthy of that. Number two, he says, let us assemble to affirm our hope in Christ. Verse number 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful that promised. This phrase, the profession of our faith, means the confession of our hope. It means our proclamations, our declaration of what is true in Christ. And what is true of Christ? This was true in the Old Covenant. They did this when they would come to the temple to worship. These Jewish pilgrims under the Old Covenant would come singing the Psalms of Ascent, declaring, building one another's faith up as they would come. They would come up the steps of the temple. I'm coming before the Lord. My help is from the Lord. And this one would say, if it were not for the Lord, we would have been consumed. And this one said, I'm glad they said, come to the house of the Lord where I find my help. And they were encouraging one another's faith. He said, when you assemble... You assemble to strengthen your hope, to affirm your hope in Christ. Loved ones, our faith is strengthened by our mutual declarations of what is so. Listen carefully. You are not adequately strengthened simply by what you hear, but you are strengthened by what you affirm, what you say. Your faith is strengthened when you stand, 
When Jonathan Jordan, our worship pastor, or Joshua Story at East Campus, or when, when Dustin says this at West Campus in a few weeks, when your worship pastor says, stand to your feet, and you stand shoulder to shoulder with covenant brothers and covenant sisters, and you sing of the glories of Jesus. You don't just hear it. You declare it in song. Your faith is strengthened. Your faith is strengthened when you assemble with God's people and you greet one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. You're not just sitting isolated alone and hearing a sermon, but you're greeting, you're hugging your brothers, you're shaking hands with your sisters, you're celebrating the unity that we have as a body. It affirms and it strengthens your faith. Our our faith is affirmed, our hope is strengthened when we pray together. Our hope is strengthened. Our faith is affirmed when we affirm God's word together. Do you know that your, let me me build some amen corners in these these congregations. Your faith is strengthened when you shout amen. 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 That you're not just hearing and receiving, but you're saying, that's right. I agree with that. Amen. Your faith is strengthened. When you assemble and we put new believers in the waters of the baptistry and you see them immersed and you celebrate with them, you're reminded of your own baptism and your own confidence in the death and resurrection of Christ. Your faith is strengthened when we assemble and we take the bread and the juice and we receive communion and we celebrate the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. All of these mutual actions of covenant people in a covenant relationship with a covenant-keeping God and with one another, build our faith. And you can't do any of those things over the internet. Number three and finally, he says, because Jesus is greater and because God is our Father and because we are his covenant sons and daughters, let us assemble with pure hearts and lives. Let us assemble to affirm our faith. And number three, let us assemble for the sake of of others more than the sake of ourselves. And this is verse 24 and 25. And let us consider one another. The word consider means to think about, be mindful of everyone else more than you're mindful of yourself. It means to be mindful of everyone else more than you're mindful of yourself. Let us consider, be thoughtful of one another so that we might stir up one another to love and to good works, strengthening, growing in our faith. Verse 25, do not forsake or neglect the assembling of yourselves together. Some will do this in the last days. Some will do this, but don't let it be you, he says. Some will neglect the assembly, but don't let it be you. Because you're covenant people in a covenant relationship with a covenant-keeping God. And your faith is strengthened and he is worthy. And so you come together being mindful of one another. What does it look like to stir others up, to be mindful of one another? It means that when you come together with the right heart in the assembly of the body of Christ for a gathering of worship, that you are not simply looking at yourself but you're looking around to say, how can I bless that person? That person looks sad. How can I encourage them? That person seems to have a heavy weight on their shoulders. How can I lift their burden? That ministry area needs help. How can I step in and serve? That that over there is an area where I believe I can make a difference. And so how can I step in? You begin to look around and say, this is not about me. These are my covenant brothers and sisters. How can I build them up? It means that when you assemble together, that you say, how can I pray for that person? How can I put a smile on that person's face and lift their hearts and encourage them a bit? How can I greet that guest who comes in looking around like, where do I go? How can I greet that person and encourage them? How can I serve my church? And serving in that way and greeting in that way and encouraging in that way and speaking to one another in that way and hugging each other and greeting and all of these ways in which we think about and build up one another can never be done in isolation 
and can never be done over the internet. And so hear me. God is a covenant-keeping God. He has drawn us into a covenant relationship with himself and into a covenant relationship with one another. And in his word, he has said, I have called you to assemble, to draw near, to come together so that you might grow your faith, declare my worth, and so that you might build one another up. So let me close with a discipline or a goal, a discipline, and a habit. Our goal this week, if we want to, if we are going to follow through in these commands, our goal is to be a blessing to the gathered church. That's our goal, right? Listen, the goal is not to get a sermon, although I love preaching, so I hope you like getting sermons. That's not the goal. The goal is not, there's one goal. I want to be a blessing. That's what Paul's commanding us to, or the writer of Hebrews. Some say Paul wrote it. We're being, we're being commanded to be a blessing to one another. Number two, I have to have a discipline. If I'm going to be a blessing, I have to live with discipline. And the discipline that I need to live with is to participate and connect weekly in worship gatherings, or to participate in weekly worship gatherings. Now, you can watch online and be blessed but you can't watch online and be a blessing. And so if I'm going to if I'm going to be a blessing, I'm going to have to participate and connect in weekly worship gatherings. And if that's going to be a discipline in my life, if if I'm going to be disciplined about participating and connecting, then I'm going to have to cultivate the habit of planning worship first. Planning worship first. And here's what that means. It means that if you are going to be a blessing to the assembled body of Christ for the glory of this worthy Savior and for the building up of the body and for your own spiritual growth, then you have to begin to say the value of that worship gathering, that assembly of the covenant people of God with their covenant making God, that the value of that assembly is going to go way up on my priority list. Right? I'm going to start planning around it instead of planning it around other things. Okay? That means, now if y'all love me, shout amen. <laughs> so I'm going to just kind of put the metal to the pe- pedal to the metal here to finish. I'm way over time, so what difference does it make at this point, right? Here's what I want you to know. It means that some of you who are here today, I'm so glad you're here, but the habit of your consistency is that you'll be back in about a month. Because people go to church once or twice a month. If you're going to be a blessing and live out this value and grow in godliness, you've got to change that. Okay? It means that you're going to have to develop the habit of saying that my, my Sunday, I value Sunday worship, and so I'm going to stop saying I'll go to church if I don't have anything else to do. Y'all with me? It's not like, well, I got other things. If those things fall through, I'll go do that. No, no. I'm going to, just, I'm going to switch that, right? Like if they cancel church, I'll go do, that, go do that other thing. We're not going to cancel church, so you'll be here, all right? Um, you have to stop saying, I'll go to church if the weather is nice, but not too nice. Because <laughs> if it's too nice, I might go do something else, go on a picnic. You have to say, I value this because God values this and because Jesus is worthy of this and because you are worthy of me coming here to bless you. And that's what I value. Amen? Amen. All you online watchers, amen? (laughs) If you're still with us. (laughs) Hey, these are disciplines, right? They're not easy, but they're disciplines. And, um, And if we do them, we grow in longing to do them.